Well, let's uh, go to our scripture lesson this morning, uh, reading, first of all, from the book of Isaiah. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel among you. And then reading from uh, the Gospel of John, the second chapter. The cover of the bulletin gives you a clue of what this is all about. I always look forward to what Leanne is going to find to put on the cover. I kind of like this one. You like that one too? Yeah, okay. Okay. You knew it had something to do with turning water into wine. Okay. (laughs) On the third day, a wedding took place at Canaan in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for revealing your will, your way to us in your word, and we pray now that we would have ears to hear what you would say to us. Thank you for your grace, for your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning I am beginning a series of messages on uh, the miracles that are found in John's gospel. Actually, John refers to these feats not as miracles, but as signs. These supernatural feats performed by Jesus are not meant simply to impress or to amaze, but they point to something more significant. They tell us something about the nature of God's inbreaking kingdom, God's kingdom come in Jesus. There are seven of these signs in John's gospel, and each one tells us something very significant about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. They reveal his glory, says John. So the first of these signs, the the very first thing Jesus should should do, beginning his public ministry, should be very revealing indeed. And it's interesting that he should choose to perform his first sign at a wedding. 
in order to save a family from social disgrace. Now, weddings in um, Palestinian villages were a big deal. The actual ceremony would take place on a Wednesday evening, according to custom. And after the ceremony was over, the uh, couple would uh, be escorted to their new home. They would wind their way through the village streets with a canopy over their heads, and all the villagers would express their, uh, their good wishes for them as they begin their new life. And then the couple, once they reach their new home, uh, they don't go off on a honeymoon, but they stay home and they keep open house for a week where there is continual partying and feasting. Can you imagine that? One big party for a week. Man, that's a lot of nachos. That's a lot of drink. That's a lot of food for some poor family. The couple wore wedding garments, and they wore crowns on their heads, and they would be treated as royalty. So Jesus and his mother, Mary, were invited to this wedding uh, ceremony and party. And uh, we don't know anything about the bride and groom. It may be that Mary was related to this family. We don't know. But whatever the case, it was one great party. And all things were going according to plan, except the wine supply was running dangerously low. The rabbis had a saying, without wine, there is no joy. Some wine company may have invented that. I don't know. Mondavi? Without wine, there was no joy. But it's not that they encouraged drunkenness. Far from it. In fact, it was considered to be totally disgraceful for a Jew to appear in public uh, in a drunken state. In fact, you'd have to drink an awful lot of that to get to that point because the wine back then was uh, actually quite weak by today's standards, very diluted. But wine was the social drink of the day. The water was poor anyway. And hospitality was a big deal. And so it was a sacred duty uh, that, uh, that one should provide for, for guests and that one should never run out of wine. Because if you did, you would be publicly humiliated, be disgraceful. So disaster threatened. So Mary caught wind of this problem and came to Jesus, apparently expecting him to do something. Now, Mary by this time knew that her son was kind of special. I mean, can you imagine being the mother of a sinless boy? <laughs> Don't quite know how that could be, but such is the case. He, he was exceptional. And he, of course, he had not performed a public miracle, but clearly Mary thought that he could do something to resolve this problem and take care of this family. And uh, so, so Mary asked him, you know, they have no more wine. In essence, she was saying, do something about it. And then Jesus' response seems kind of rude, doesn't it? I've always kind of wondered about this. I mean, he says, dear woman or oh woman, what, have you have to do, what, what do you have to do with me? My time, my hour has not yet come. Uh, actually, this, this, uh, this phrase, oh woman or dear woman, was actually a, uh, a term of endearment. Uh, Jesus says the same thing to his mother from the cross. You know, oh, um, you know, oh woman, dear woman. So we don't necessarily have to, to believe that Jesus is actually being rude or curt with his mother. 
Uh, but he was simply telling her that he has to obey God's instructions, not her desires. But nevertheless, Jesus decided to do something. And so he, he sees this six water pots, huge water pots used for purification rites, for ceremonies. And he ordered them to be filled to the brim. And then he directed the servant to draw some of it and then take it to the steward of the feast. And lo and behold, the water had turned into wine. And the steward raved about it to the bridegroom and wondered why such good wine had been saved until the last, because normally, of course, you want to serve the good wine while people are still sensitive to its taste, right? After a few drinks, it doesn't matter anymore. So you always serve your best wine first. So the steward uh, didn't understand where this good wine had come from. Well, the fact is, the wedding party was saved, and uh, family was spared humiliation. So on the surface, then, this miracle is, is simply a concrete example of Jesus' love and compassion, an expression of concern for the happiness of, of these newlyweds. Kind of just another deed of love. But we have said that according to the gospel writer John, this mir- miracles are a sign. That is, they point to something deeper, to something more spiritually significant. So what might that be? Well, for one thing, the fact that Jesus performs his first miracle at a wedding, an occasion of great joy, is quite telling. We know the importance of first impressions, and the first impression we get of Jesus is not that he's some terribly morose, serious, somber, black-robed preacher, you know, who just can't smile and have fun. But what, rather, we have a man who enters into the joy. In fact, he brings life to the party, right, by providing the wine. In fact, I like to think that Jesus was the life of the party. How unlike John the Baptist, who was indeed rather severe and somber, you know, talking about sin and all that stuff all the time, who wouldn't be caught dead at a party like this? No, there was Jesus in the middle of it having fun with the party. Now, some people complained that, uh, that Jesus was not fasting like John uh, was fasting. Uh, they accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton, falsely accused, of course. But there's no th- doubt that Jesus loved to be with others and others loved to be with him. Jesus really liked a good party. So really, the keynote of his ministry, this first sign, the first thing he does when he begins his public ministry is he brings joy. He is a man of joy. Now, when you think of Jesus, I don't know what you think of right off. You probably think of love, you know, because he was a man of love. But joy is right up there. He was a man full of joy. No words were more frequently on his lips than, be of good cheer, rejoice. I came to bring you life and life abundant. Blessed are you. Happy are you. Some of the recent portrayals in the media are are actually better in in, in highlighting the lighter side to Jesus' personality. In in the old days, you know, in the old movies, he was always this thin, sickly-looking, morose kind of a figure. Why would anybody want to follow him? You know, but more recently, you know, there, there have been 
uh, movies and shows that, that, that talk about his lighter side, that, that Jesus actually laughs. And many of you have seen sketches of, of that face of Jesus where he's laughing and graces the, the, the walls of many households. Elton Trueblood once wrote a book with the title The Humor of Christ, in which he points to over 30 passages of Jesus' teachings that tickle the funny bone in some way. Jesus brings joy to life. As one writer puts it, joy is the most infallible sign of the presence of God. God wants us to celebrate life. God is anything but the kind of God who is, in the words of one little boy, the sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anybody's having a good time and then trying to stop it. God is not some kind of celestial Scrooge. Our Lord did not come to rob us of laughter and cheat us of our joy by telling us all the stuff that we cannot do. And it's sad that some people have that impression of Jesus, but such is not the case. He radiated joy and brightened the lives of all those who were around him. That's why he was so attractive. That's why people followed him. He certainly brightened that party in Cana. The fact that Jesus seemed to love parties makes me a little less critical of those churches who canceled worship services today so that their people can watch the Seahawks. Now, I wouldn't have done that. But then again, maybe Jesus was just the kind of person who would love to be at that football party wearing a Russell Wilson jersey, eating nachos. So, you know, when I first heard about it, I got on my high horse, of course. Sports is an idol. Seahawks, they worship them. On the other hand, maybe we just need to kind of <laughs> uh, remember, remember what we're about. We're about joy. <laughs> and uh, God knows. And we know that Jesus is a Seahawks fan. So somewhere in the book of facts, right, Dwayne? <laughs> somewhere in the book of facts in the Bible... Jesus is saying, go Seahawks. <laughs> Good guys always win, right? So if, if Jesus was all about joy, then, then uh, certainly those who follow Jesus should be also all about joy, and they should be radiating it, and they should be enjoying life and celebrating its delights and receiving everything as God's gift. Sadly, however, Christian people have not always reflected that joy. Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish philosopher, once said, Christ turned water into wine, but the church has succeeded in doing something even more difficult. It has turned wine into water. <laughs> I remember a, a homiletics professor at seminary who said, you know, you preachers can put more black crepe on good news than anybody I know. It was with Robert Louis Stevenson who said, I came to church, he wrote in his diary, I came to church and I'm not depressed. <laughs> As though he were surprised. Speaking of Danish, there's a Danish film entitled Babette's Feast that uh, won lots of awards back in the 1980s. Uh, it was the best foreign language film. 
And the story is about a close-knit but very somber, austere Christian community in Denmark. And the people rarely smile, let alone laugh. And the black and white cinematography adds to the darkness and to the, the joylessness of this particular Christian community. But they were being spiritual, right? Very spiritual. And they go around quoting scripture verses and holding everybody accountable all the time. Well, this foreign woman uh, from France comes to stay with, with her two sisters in this severe community. And uh, this woman named Babette hires on as a maid and as a cook. And she's accepted into the community, and she's staying with her two sisters. But what they don't know is that this newcomer uh, is a, a fabulously uh, trained cook. She's a fabulous cook, trained in the finest schools of Paris. But she keeps that fact hidden. In fact, the two sisters, not knowing about this, teach her how to cook fish soup, which they have day after day after day. Well, one day Babette gets a telegram from Paris that tells her that she has come into a lot of money. She has won the lottery. She's a lot of money. And, of course, she's thrilled and is anxious to get back to her home in Paris. However, before she, she leaves to claim her fortune, she decides she'll, she'll thank the community by giving them, by cooking them a dinner, a feast to end all feasts. And, uh, and so the members of the community are taught, you know, to... Um, to gracefully accept the thanks of others. And so they all are extended the invitation and they all accept. So they all come to this dinner. And then Babette proceeds to cook with abandon. Uh, she puts on a feast like no other. She's come into money. So now money is no object. And so she prepares the finest meats and the best French cheeses and the richest wine and the best French cognac. And, uh, and so all these incredibly presented plates come out to the gathered guests around this long table. And uh, as you watch this film, you really have to really see it to appreciate it. That, you know, all these people are wide-eyed. They've never seen anything quite like it because, after all, their diet is fish soup day after day after day. But as they then proceed to eat, it's obvious that they're taking special delight in this. But because they are spiritual, they try not to show too much their pleasure or their delight. And so during this 10-minute scene in this movie, it's just hilarious how these spiritual people are trying not to enjoy it too much. And, and it, it really is, it, the results are quite hilarious. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, you know, spiritual, somehow they, they've made this equation between being spiritual and being serious and, and not too much into earthly pleasure. Well, those people, I think, learned a lesson. Maybe they learned something about God because God is all about enjoyment and uh, God is not anti-pleasure, and that's true, certainly, to the Old Testament, which describes fellowship with God as something like being at a delightful dinner party. 
The enjoyment of good food and, and, and good company around a table is an image of what it will be like in the, in the kingdom of heaven when all God's people will be gathered uh, at the end of time in the messianic banquet. The banquet is the central image of the, the end, the, the kingdom of God. Joy and celebration, the enjoyment of life and of each other, are marks of people who know God, who walk with God. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, says Isaiah. So Jesus Christ came to give us joy. But he came to do more than that. The sign itself, the changing of water into wine, is very significant, for it tells us that Jesus has the power to change things. Everything Jesus touches, he transforms, including you and me. And this kind of change is always for the better. And you remember, he didn't just turn the water into ordinary wine, but he turned it into the finest wine, the richest wine, the kind you serve guests first while their palates are still sensitive. He changes us and makes us better people than we were before. So that, so that he takes all the little flaws in our character. You know what those flaws are, probably. I know what mine are. And, you know, he, he takes that... That, uh, that impatience, and, and he takes that self-centeredness, and he takes that temper, and he transforms them, making us more like Christ, more genuinely human. He remakes us into his image so that we begin to think and feel and act the way he does. We become new and different people. Think of uh, the transformation of those disciples. Talk about turning water into wine. I mean, look what happened as the disciples followed Jesus. There was Simon Peter, who was kind of a mess when he first met Jesus. You know, he was impulsive. He was unstable as water in the beginning. And yet the more he walks with Jesus, the more uh, courageous he becomes, the more rock-like he becomes. And then in the end, he becomes the leader of the Christian church. You know, from fishermen who was always putting his foot in his mouth to leader of the Christian church, making important decisions. Transformation, turning water into wine. Then there was a disciple, John, who was, was given to a temper tantrum. He had a talk about anger management. He really needed it. John was one of the guys who, because he was not well-received in a Samaritan village, asked Jesus to rain down fire and brimstone upon that village, as their due, for not giving them a night's lodging. And then later, John, who you know, lives to be the, the, he's the longest live disciple, dies in old age, and he becomes known as the apostle of love. Some of the best passages in the Bible in love were written by John. In fact, they had something to do with this gospel, right? Change, transformation, turning water into wine. And then there was, of course, Paul, the greatest menace to Christianity there ever was, who turned into its greatest missionary. So that everything Jesus touches, he transforms. Jesus Christ changes you and me for the better. Although, to be sure, you know, that change is not instantaneous. I mean, wouldn't we wish that we would just be instantly changed and become these marvelous, wonderful uh, beings? But we're human beings, and Jesus 
chooses to take his time with us because, after all, he's producing really fine wine, really fine wine. And for it to be really fine wine, you have to go through a process, and it takes a lot of time. What was it, Orson Welles? Some of you remember him? There's no wine before it's time. Right? So the secret of transformation is walking with the master who transforms things. It's about a relationship with him. It's, it's walking with him day by day. It's taking our instructions from him. It's trying to put those things into practice. It's establishing a friendship. And like any friendship, you can't rush it. It takes time. It's interesting to me that this account of the first sign that Jesus performs comes immediately after Jesus calls the disciples. The end of chapter 1, Jesus calls the disciples. It's kind of like John is saying, hey, look, when you decide to follow Jesus, you are going to embark upon a life full of joy and transformative change. And it will be a change always for the better. Life will become richer, more alive, more vibrant, like fine wine, rich. Well, thankfully, it's not all up to us. We Christians believe that there is a power at work within us which is able to do far more abundantly than all that we would ask or think that we have within us the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who teaches us, who empowers us to live a transformed life. And there is no limit to his power as our God is a God of abundance, which is another point. Another, uh, the, uh, the sign points to this truth as well. God is a God of abundance. Jesus turns six huge water pots, each about 25 gallons, uh, turns them into wine, 150 gallons in all, more than enough for the wildest of parties. So too, he more than meets our need. You and I cannot exhaust his grace. He gives us power to live the kind of life he wants us to live. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, says John, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That's the most important thing you and I need to live a transformed life. We need to believe in him, that is, we need to trust him, have faith in him, faith in his ability to lead us, to guide us, and his ability to change us. He touches every life that will surrender to him. Not to cheapen, not to spoil, or to rob us of joy, but to transform and to glorify, to enrich beyond measure. It's all like turning ordinary water into the finest wine. Amen.